That's right, ladies and gentlemen. We're uh, we're starting with quick two beats from Law and Order. Uh, usually, this is a podcast for uh, fantasy leagues, uh, not anybody's fantasy league, but very specifically a group of twelve or so guys that um, play together, and then we talk about inside jokes on here that no one else would get, which is good because no one else listens. Um, and generally half the people that listen, say about six or so, are on the podcast to begin with. So we're really just listening to ourselves play back inside jokes that we have with each other. So it's kind of a inception nonsense recorded podcast, generally. But as you've seen with that opening tone that we all know and love from Law & Order... This is a very special true crime podcast. No fantasy relevance at all. I was going to um, do a little mock draft on the second half, but you know, anybody that's ever listened to me on here realizes that I don't prepare at all. I have absolutely no notes, nothing except right off the cuff. So if I have to cough or something, you're getting recorded. There's no editing. I, I press record, and then I press stop, and then I load it up to Anchor. Shout out to Anchor for being free. So, uh, I'm going to keep it easy. Uh, I'm just going to uh, go off memory with my uh, my jury experience. But first, I'm going to uh, talk about an inside joke. So, because, I mean, that's what we do. Oh, and I want to go back to the true crime podcast. I was like, man, I don't know if I can just like label myself that. I don't really know what that even means. So I d- this was the extent of my research. To a true crime, uh, the definition according to uh, Wikipedia is a nonfiction literary podcast and film genre in which the author examines an actual crime and details the action of real people. So, I mean... Here we are, ladies and gentlemen. We have made it. Uh, So, going to the inside joke. uh, Law and order. Uh, So, my mom, no relation, just kidding, definitely my mom. She uh, sends me this link. Now, this link is about uh, a woman, was a a girl, played volleyball at our high school, uh, very successful. She was an absolute monster. She's like a superstar. Um, very cute. She may or may not have dated um, a member of our league. Uh, I, I, I'll i leave out the specific names, you know, just because I don't want to give anything away. But uh, I don't know if my mom knew they dated or if she was just telling me that she saw the link on WMUR and was like, hey, maybe Dave will care. Well, she is going to, was uh, appeared on a Law and Order episode. All right, so uh, I I held this information. I I did not tell the person that may or may not have dated her in high school, because uh, I I just didn't really think he would care. I to be honest, uh, it's if someone sent me a link about what my high school ex was doing, I'd be like, cool, right? I mean. That's cool. She's on a TV show. She's out of uh, Tilton, New Hampshire, San Martin, New Hampshire. She's going to be on Law & Order. I don't know how that worked. But, uh, 
I mean, so that, that's cool in that respect, but otherwise I just wouldn't care. So I, I, I did wait like 12 hours, and then I was like, you know what, I'm just going to pop it over to him. Uh, it wasn't really a jab or anything. It was just kind of a, an information share. And his response is the funniest text I've ever received in my entire life. Um, I am currently tearing up again. I have cried over this text too many times. Uh, getting a phone call, I have no idea who it is. Hope it's nobody important. Uh, so I sent the link to uh, unnamed uh, member of our fantasy league. Sorry, I, I know how exciting it is to listen to someone laugh. Uh, <laughs> and he says, and I quote, If I get another person sending me this damn link, I know, Dave, thanks. I'm an overweight, middle-aged man that hasn't left his hometown and works in le for less than I should, and the girl I lost my virginity to is starring in goddamn Law & Order. <laughs> Uh, tears. I'm sorry. It's hilarious. Um, so that that's that's why we went with little Law and Order. So true crime. Your boy got selected for jury duty. About a month ago, um, I got this big obnoxious summons in the mail. Like it has huge like red lettering and stuff looks super important but it also looks like they're trying to save me some money on my mortgage so it was one of those things where you almost threw it away but i was like eh, you know i kind of looked at it you know it seemed like it was legit from uh it must have been from the state i don't remember um and so of course i procrastinated you have to answer within 10 days and i think i waited till like midnight on the 10th day and you have to do a questionnaire um this will come up a little later you just kind of have to you know give a little background to yourself uh, i think it had employment and stuff um any any type of like uh violation history um and all my stuff has been expunged so uh no worries there uh so they, after you submit that, about a week later, they send you an email, and it has this video. Um, and you're supposed to watch the video. It's about, it, it's, you know, it might have been from the 90s. Um, people saying how empowered they feel being on jury duty. And that, uh, oh, that caller left the voicemail. Hmm. We'll check that later. I, there's some more a tease for you in the business call that you know come back after the commercial um so they send you this video and i didn't watch the video and i didn't think there would be any relevance i thought um you know everybody would ignore it and i show up for jury duty on monday morning at eight fifteen. actually it was just selection not actually duty itself and um the clerk, who is wearing uh, shiny leopard pants with platform boots, you know, unexpected, um, asked me if I had watched the video. And I was like, shit. I might even have said literally shit, 
no, I didn't. And so she's like, well, do you have a way to watch it? And I was like, yeah, I can go watch it on my phone. And so they go into this jury room and looks to be about 40 people. I, I'm going to estimate 40 or 50 is probably the even number they were looking for. And, um, and the people are selected based off of you have to have a driver's license uh, or registered to vote. That's uh, something I learned. So I go in, I'm, I open up my email, I open up the video, and, like, you don't want to be that guy in, like, a conference room listening to a video, you know. So I have it down quiet. I'm kind of just barely watching it. And then Leopard Pants comes in, and she's like, well, since none of you watched the video, which I was like, vindicated. She rolls down a big projector, and we watch the video. Now, again, we're supposed to be there by 8.15. It says promptly on the um, on the letter that that's when we're supposed to be there. People are rolling in, you know, 15 minutes late, 30 minutes late. I think almost 45 minutes late. Now, it might have been some strategy to that, right? Um, not a lot of people want to participate in this exercise. And so maybe people were thinking that they just get turned around. But what happened was um, they kept a list of all the people that must have shown up. Like, it must have been 20 minutes late. Like, I don't know. They, they didn't, like, tell us what, um, what the cutoff was. But they kept track of the, like, six latest people. And those people, went, when we were eventually went to the courtroom for selection, actual selection... They, like, announced them that they had to go back into that room and watch it by themselves. So, I avoided that. Um, it didn't get anybody out of anything. If anything, it was slightly embarrassing. But, uh, and it was a pretty good chuckle that none of us watched the video. So, we are now in the courtroom. Um, first thing they do is they say, alright, we're going to randomly draw names. Um, it's out of those, one of those, like, uh, the old, like, lotto buckets, you know, like, it's like wooden, you put your own name in there, and then they shuffle it up and pull the name out of a hat, except not a hat, because, like I said, it was, like, a lotto thing, and, uh, so when they announce your name, you have to tell them whether you have, like, a conflict of interest, they, uh, announce the, like, five to seven potential witnesses, it was, like, um, four cops, like a health and human services person, I think. And then they, they said the person who filed the complaint and then the um, the defendant, I believe. And they let us know that the case was going to be about um, stalking. That was good. that was the charge. And um, so the process, uh, they would pull the name, then he'd stand up and he'd say, if you have yes, or maybe, then you approach approach the bench, and then you had to give your excuse, and then they would uh, recuse you, and you go back to sitting back down, or you'd say, nope, and they'd put you um, over in the jury box. And at that point, for, so, like I said, there's like 40 or 50 people, and people are just, everybody's got some type of excuse or something going on. And then if you say no, then the lawyers, some of them, based off your questionnaire, they go and approach the bench and they're like, nah, we don't want this guy either. So they start recusing people. So 
And recuse is probably the wrong word. I mean, I, I'm just a mere juror. I don't know what's going on here. And uh, so literally you're sitting there. If there's 40 or 50 people in there and 60% are going to make excuses or get bounced and they're selecting 20 of you, like, you know, if you say no, you're pretty much going up. And so uh, I was like, ah, you know, maybe I'll be number 23 and I'll be good. Nah, I was number six. So juror number six, they didn't have anything on me. So your boy is in. Um, now the next thing they do uh, after they've selected 20, um, all the other people that didn't have, uh, that weren't selected for this, all those people that thought they were so smart and they are going to go back to work and, you know, they got out of jury duty and maybe they won't, I don't know if that counts as being selected and then I think you get three years off, but um, they had to come back at two for the next selection. So hey, it wasn't paying to try to avoid. It, it just, it didn't seem like it was working out for anybody. But, so uh, continuing on, uh, the lawyers, both the prosecutors and the defenders, uh, defendant's lawyer, talked to us directly. They just, excuse me, on a podium right out in front of us, um, looking right at us. They, first guy comes up, and, you know, I, I hate to judge a book by his, by his cover, but um, if you, if the next time you walk around somewhere and you put your hands behind your back, right? And I'm going to do this, which is going to throw off the audio, but I just want to, so you put your hands behind your back, hold them, hold one of your wrists, and then like keep your hand like at your butt and your back really straight. And then if you walk and you kind of see like what that does to your posture, um, the gentleman had a real Napoleon um, dynamite vibe to him. And I thought that maybe he was just like uh like in training you know this is the state da i didn't i didn't know if they could just bring someone on who was learning yeah i mean you have to learn somewhere right and uh so the guy comes up and he goes um i am and i'm not obviously not gonna say his name and he's like what is domestic violence and we're like you know for some reason i thought it would be a little more like um, personal based. I get. I guess that they would like ask us individual questions in this classroom setting with all these people around me. I'm not saying like anything, right? I'm just kind of hanging out. Um, I'm just kind of along for the ride, uh, and some people are kind of thrown out. You know, domestic violence is kind of a. It, we think of it as being like you know, abuse in the house, abuse in the family, right? Um, I think the technical part of it is just that you have to have been intimate with the person um, and not even intimate, like, sexually. You just have to, intimate has been, like, you were dating, like, you're... Um, but, you know, you get the people just throwing out random things, um, telling how it's mental and physical and all this, and, you know, just, you know, throwing stuff at the wall, see if it sticks. And it was, it was kind of weird because it, it didn't feel like he was leading anybody to any type of response or what he was actually looking for. It kind of just felt like he went up and was like, 
what is this? Okay, I'm good. And then the the defense attorney, defense attorney, I, not gonna lie, def, I was a fan. He's got like a, kind of like a, like a Saul Goodman vibe to him. Just a unkept, he, he must have been mid-60s. Gray hair going everywhere, gray beard. Like I said, he got the oversized suit, uh, probably from the 90s with that video from the uh, about the jury. And this dude, he's been doing it. He's been doing it for a bit. There was no question about it. Um, he comes up. His question is more of, what does it take? Uh, like, how hard is it to accuse someone of something? You know, and that was, I, that's an easy question, right? I, it, there's no real, all it takes is an accuser, right? There, it doesn't, it doesn't mean something happened. All it means is someone accused. So, uh, and one guy was all over it, like just really outspoken about how easy it was to accuse. So, and he sits back down. See, the defense attorney, he had was more like leading right and was like you see that that the reason i'm asking you this is because it really is that easy and it's going to matter whereas the first guy made it just like hey this is the law exam and we're kind of just like okay now that i know what domestic violence is um i and even after the fact i don't know what knowing domestic violence what that even the relation to the case, believe it or not. Um, so this was this was just my initial impression of who we were dealing with here. Um, the both lawyers then approach the bench, and what happens is they can each pop three out, no questions asked. So they just got rid of the six people that opened their mouths. Like they they would just they just kept everybody who stuck to themselves or like. I um, I had mentioned something. I think the the defense attorney had asked about what makes a, someone credible, or what how can you tell they're credible? And I I just mentioned that they had a consistent story, right? Just that you know, with the cross examination or whatever, if the if it was consistent and they didn't really get tripped up, it kind of felt credible. Um, so that was the only thing that I added, but. Um, they got rid of six, and we were down to 14. Um, and so that was my Monday. I uh, got out at 10, ran home, and I had a class that I was missing. So I was happy to be out. Um, I thought that you get a warning that this could take up to, uh, like, four to seven weeks or something. But on average, it's one to five days. So I was really hoping um, to get in and out, and Monday was good. But then I was selected, and... The funny thing was, is I came home and told Corinne that uh, trial doesn't start till next week on the 3rd, and she made sure to point out that the 3rd was, in fact, this this Thursday. So, thanks to her, I actually made it. We're going to skip right ahead to Thursday, because um, I didn't tell any of you about, about this case, uh, no matter what you asked. Uh, I, I fully embraced um, everything, uh, being part of a juror. I figured I hadn't done this before. I wanted to see how it works, and I just wanted to give it 
uh, everything that I could to um, be a part of the system. So I show up Thursday, 8.15. No one's there. It uh, apparently says in my slip that the thing, that we're not supposed to be there until 9.45, uh, which is great because now it starts later in the day. And I am like, oh, man, this thing is never going to end. Why are we starting late? Um, so I have great attention to detail. Um, come back at 9.45. The slip that says 9.45 on it, I left in the Jeep. It was the only form that we needed to bring with us. So uh, I go running back. You know, I'm already, of course, I showed up at like 9.44 and 53 seconds. And uh, so I have to run back to the Jeep. Um, and I grab the paper, but on my way out the door, I almost like take out this woman. Um, and she's all, she's in a dress suit. I was, I didn't know who she was, but uh, it's, as it's turned out, I almost took out the uh, accuser. <laughs> so, so we hit the initial bump right away. Um, so that was just a quick, quick story. Uh, get back in. Um, we go into, we're, we go back into that initial room where we had watched the video and there's, we're not allowed to talk about anything about how we feel about anything still. In fact, we weren't allowed to talk at any point during the day about the case. Um, we, the first thing they did was the judge, um, came out and explained, you know, what the charge was, um, the stalking complaint, and then I believe there's four parts, but I can't remember what the fourth one is. You have to have a restraining order. You have to show that the restraining order was violated. Uh, you have to show that they were intimate, which was obvious because they had a marriage prior, prior so um, that one was checked right off. Um, and then there's some other part, but it was another thing that was, again, like checked off immediately. So really what we were being tested on was, did they violate the restraining order? Now, the, they first tell us the complaint that uh, the accuser says that her ex-husband, um, when they're in a hospital from when they're mutual son uh, broke his elbow that he was upset with her for a myriad of events that we'll go over um, and that he said in Arabic that uh, this will not be the end of you I will kill you very soon so this is how our this is the opening uh, this is uh 10.30 on Thursday morning, and uh, we're like, well, maybe this is a little more serious than we thought it was going to be. Thought it was going to be pretty straightforward, uh, uh, you know, stalking case. He either did or he didn't. He must have been in the wrong area if he had a restraining order and he got arrested, right? It seems like it um, was kind of going to be a waste of everybody's time, but um, and we thought we'd be in, in and out, but then it sounded like it got a little more serious, so... The first person the prosecution calls on the stage is the accuser. Like, we're, we're just getting after it. Um, and I want to point out that just before um, they called her down, the judge explained kind of the law to us. Um, 
you know, that all of the facts of the case are really based on what we determine are the facts. It was, it was pretty interesting to – any weight that you put in any facts of the case is strictly on us. So anything like a direct fact would be like a eyewitness or, um, you know, anything like a picture, a video or anything like that. That's direct. And then um, I can't even think of what the other – evidence circumstantial um, circumstantial evidence is kind of like either uh, inferred or someone else saying something or you know just not as concrete but it kind of corroborates and neither of those are more stronger than the other believe it or not um, and they said straight up like it's on us to determine the weight of everything we hear in the day uh, and one of the interesting things was they made sure to point out, and this is kind of something that I'll carry forward with me when I'm watching true crime going forward. It, the lawyers, nothing they say is actually um, supposed to be taken into account for um, the verdict. Nothing they say is factual. Um, they're they're trying to uh, draw a narrative out of what has been presented um, to the jury, but nothing they say is part of the case. So, and it actually turned up later that um, the other prosecutor who was miserable, he, um, he said, well, when we asked the ex this, he said this. But when the defendant, defending uh, lawyer asked him this, he said this. And the defending lawyer was like, uh, objection. And they went up and talked and, uh, because he's like, that's not what he said. Like, we have the testimony. And the judge was like, well, remember, Jerry, nothing the lawyer actually says matters. Um, they can really say whatever they want. You heard the actual testimony. So it's all based off of your memory. So I, I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, that, you know, even though we heard the lawyer... What, and I'm not even sure if he was wrong. I, I think that the point he was trying to make was relatively uh, um, irrelevant. I, we'll get back to it again, but I think what they were trying to point out was that the ex-husband was angry and the, or annoyed. And one time he said he wasn't annoyed, and one time he said it was kind of unfair. The, I think those were the actual words. And he's like, yeah, well, he said it was unfair. You're telling me that's not annoyed? Like, it sounds like he's changing his story. And so, like I said, it, it didn't seem like it really mattered. Um, but it was interesting, just the facts where we're, it doesn't matter what the lawyer says. Um, so, let's actually have the story here. I'm just going to, I'll go through based with both testimonials um, of what actually happened. And then I'll give you any... Um, parts to add in if I need to. So on September 17th, 2018, right? This was three and a half years ago. The, um, their mutual son playing soccer in the yard, slips on the ball, breaks his elbow. And it's serious enough. They need four pins, need surgery. Now, the husband and wife had been divorced since 2015. 
Now, as part of their divorce, the only communication they can have is about the welfare of their children. Let me repeat that. The only communication they can have is about the welfare of their children. So these two are not allowed to talk at all. Like, so let's, they don't like each other, right? Like, and you can't infer anything by what happened in their marriage. We're not given any of those details. Um, but yeah, like, so we're, they're not supposed to be near each other. And, uh, so they, um, they have a custody agreement. What they do is every other weekend he can have the, they have two boys from Saturday morning to Sunday night, but it generally is, he will shoot a text message to her and say, Hey, uh, can I have them for these six hours on one of the days? And they go to the police station and, that's where they meet and do the exchange. Cause again, like obviously there, there's some history, right? Um, so this couple, obviously cats and dogs here, their kid breaks his elbow and the mom does not tell mom slash uh, the accuser does not tell the ex-husband at all. We're talking, so he broke it on um, 17th, and he had to have, well, he broke it on, like, the weekend, and they need to have surgery on the Monday, and then he was in, like, a soft cast, and then he needed a hard cast put on the following week. Now, in between that, so, like, four days have happened since the surgery, so about six from the injury, um... There's a vit visitation. The dad says, hey, can I have the kids for three hours? And she's like, sure. Still, we're talking four or five days into this injury has never mentioned it. Right? And so, um, sorry, I got a notification on my computer here. So, she hasn't told him. They go, they go to the police station to exchange the children. And he's like, ah, uh, you know, WTF, right? Um, and she's like, yeah, he broke his arm. Oh, by the way. And, you know, he's pretty, the kid's pretty bummed out. The dad's like, what is this all about? Pretty protective as all dads are like, or any parents, right? It's very reasonable. And obviously he would be upset about this. Um, and so there, there was no indication of any type of a fight or anything. Um, the dad shoots her a text and is like, hey, can you tell me about the follow-up appointment? I'd like to be there. Can you send me any information that you have? And, um, and we have all these text messages, so we know the exact things that were said. She responds with, I don't have the information with me. I will send it to you when I get home. Um, there was a little discussion on what, quote-unquote, the information was, um, she meant the time and date of the appointment. The uh, defendant was saying more of, I was looking for medical information, and she didn't have it. But so, again, there was a little, like, squabbles like this that didn't seem to matter. But, um, and she never tells the ex-husband when the follow-up is. 
Um, the visitation was on Sunday and the follow-up was on Tuesday and she never tells him. So obviously that would be frustrating. Um, and again, so he like testifies that sure it's unfair, but it's not upsetting. And it's, it's one of those things where you're like, come on, man, you were pissed. Like, I understand you can't, you don't want to say it on, um, on trial that you're up there, you're pissed, but we get it. You're pissed. And that could lead you to say something, right? So the defendant, um, the dad shows up to the appointment on Tuesday. No one ever told us how he got the information. Um, again, the, this is a whole lot of story. You're going to be like, wait, they went through this entire story just to figure out the whole, I'm sitting there going, yeah. Um, so the threat is the only thing that we have to like, you know, weigh on none of this other stuff really matters. So I think what they're trying to do is set up that, you know, she's pretty petty about it and that she pissed him off pretty good. Um, but so he must've called the hospital. <clears throat> He's the biological dad. So I would think that he has, um, full, um, information, um, requests there. And so they gave him the, um, the time and he goes to the appointment and he brings his new wife, which probably a questionable move. You wonder, were they in town together? Cause the dad actually lives in New Jersey now. Um, did he do it just to piss her off? Did the, did the new wife, does she have something to, you know, is she upset about the, anything, you know, it just, it was a questionable move by a guy who's just trying to be like, I'm just checking in on my kid to bring your new wife and, you know, cause drama in a situation that was obviously a powder keg because they're not even allowed to talk. Remember that. <laughs> they, they can't even speak unless it's about the kids or they will break the law. So they show up and they're all just kind of sitting in the waiting room. Um, the, the accuser, the ex-wife, um, she says that the new wife had mentioned something about her. She broke the kid's arm or something, some snide comment like that. And so <clears throat> when the mom, the biological mom and the kid went to uh, get x-rays done, they only allowed one parent. She actually requested that the new wife be removed from the patient room. Which, again, they're just poking at each other. Um, we don't know the relationship between the new and the ex. Um, it, it, no one ever brings it up. I believe the ex was there. Uh, I think she was the only one sitting on the defendant's side. Uh, but... <laughs> to request that she's taken out of the room is obviously poking the bear. Um, and the ex, you know, the one who, um, is on the stand at the moment says that she does not know whether the ex-husband, the defendant knows that she requested it now, because so what she's saying is, that he might not, like, he's not going to get upset at her if it's just hospital policy, right? Um, 
But it turns out that he did know. When he goes on the stand, he's like, yeah, I knew. I knew she asked for that. And it didn't matter. It, it, no one cares. So she just waited in the patient room. Like, it, it makes sense. You know, it, there's an actual, like, you know, privacy thing there. And whatever. So, um, that was one of the things. And so, what they said was the that the ex-husband was kind of getting a little more upset, a little more upset. He didn't have any information. He, like, um, they, like, chased the doctor out the door after the x-ray and was, like, was like yelling for more information because he didn't, he hasn't seen any medical reports at this point. He kind of invited himself to the appointment. The mom isn't giving him any information. And so the ex-wife makes it sound like he's kind of yelling at the staff here. Um, the ex-husband, yeah, he says that he is, like, asking, uh, that he's frustrated. So uh, there's no real dispute that he's kind of boiling over here. Uh, like, he can say he's not annoyed, but there's all sorts of things that would be annoying. His actions um, are starting to say that he's annoyed. And... The, it's just the, the setup that we have here is just that they're, they're just kind of, he's getting madder and madder and no one's giving him any information. And so it's according to the defendant, there was a doctor in the room at all times, which I mean, if you've been to the doctor, that it's just not true. You, you know, the uh, nurse will come in and take your vitals and then. They leave, and then the doctor comes in and sees you, and then you leave. And, you know, there's time to get undressed and stuff like that and whatever. Where So the point of contention is, is that there was no one actually around when the threat actually happened. Now, they didn't ask the son, uh, which, you know, you don't really want to ask a five-year-old or get them included. What they said was the son does not understand Arabic. Um, both the parents are from Egypt. Um, now, the part about the son not understanding Arabic was in question as well because the mom says, oh, he, I mean, we tried, but it just didn't stick. He generally speaks in English. Now, the father says, yeah, my dad used to take him to... Um, Arabic and religion classes every weekend for like years and so she he said that he would know words but that there um he wouldn't understand the whole phrase but um just that you know it wasn't necessarily true they didn't understand so what we have is a a death threat in Arabic that the kid wouldn't understand or didn't tell anybody you heard. Um, no medical professional in the room. Um, now, when after this happens, the uh, ex-wife doesn't tell anyone in the hospital. But what she does is she calls the police and says that he just threatened to kill her, word for word. Um, this is not the end of you. Um, I will kill you very soon, right? And says, he's going to try to use this injury to take the kids away from me, okay? 
And so that that turned to be a bone of contention in the case as well, because that gives her motive to accuse. And they went back and um, the counter to that argument was they've they've been divorced for seven years now. From 2015 to when they were divorced to 2018, there was never an issue. There was never an attempt to get more visitation rights. At no point did he ever try to take any of the kids. Even knowing what we know now, from 2018 after the injury to 2022, there was no attempt to get the kids. Um, and... Their uh, health and human services did stop by um, just to check in, which is, you know, great that they um, do that in the hospital. And that was another thing is like, so if people are kind of looking out for abusive parents, they kind of, you almost think that they like snoop around or they kind of like try to read the parents like body languages and stuff, you know, whether they're in fear or anything. And the prosecution decided that the only witness they take on the stand is just the accuser. They absolutely no hospital staff, no um, no police. We thought that one of the you know seven people that they were going to put out was uh, was going to get called to the stand and that they would tell us something, give us any type of other information. Nothing. They didn't. The prosecution didn't try to do anything beyond ask her. What happened? Um, and I think that really hurt them because it, it, we just didn't have any corroborating uh, evidence that, you know, if, if this guy threatened your life, then how come no one else knew about it and, until you called the police? And again, the, as I brought up in the um, jury room afterwards when we were deliberating, you know, if she hadn't called the police, right, and say she had waited till she got home and pressed charges or something, we would say, well, why didn't you call the police, right? So we get that victim-blaming mentality. So, I mean, she called the police. So she was obviously scared, um, which kind of fits along with everything we know about them, right, and kind of can infer. They're not allowed to even talk. They, they only meet at a police station. That's it. That's the only time they ever are near each other. So um, it's obvious that uh, they have some type of history. We don't know if there's ever a domestic issue one way or another, or that um, he's worried that she's going to accuse him, or sh she's worried that he's going to hit her, or anything like that. We don't have anything to say that um, he's scared of her, or she's scared of him. So, But she called the cops. Um and so that was kind of the thing was no one heard the threat. And then, um, you know, and then she directly had this um, feeling that he was going to take the kids and that's why he threatened to kill her. And then if you take away the motive of he was going to take away the kids, you're kind of like, I mean, this dude was pissed, but did he really say he was going to kill you? Um and so that was one of the big surprising things was that, you know, the defendant generally doesn't um, take the stand, right? Because you can just straight up, sorry, I'm going to take a quick drink here. Um, 
Because you can just straight up be like, hey, did you uh, say you're going to kill her? You know, and then you're <laughs> you're kind of like, uh, no. Or you're like, ah, shit, I did. You know, and that kind of ruins everything. <laughs> uh, you don't want to self-incriminate. Um, but no one said, like, there was no one to say that he did uh, say it. He's like, no, nah, I didn't say that. There was no one. I wish that there was someone that said, yeah, I heard him say something in Arabic, right? Because then they had speaking, been speaking English the entire time. So maybe if he's pissed off and he wanted to say something that only she would understand, he switches to Arabic, right? That that's something that would have made sense. But um, no one heard. No one heard Arabic. No one at all. Um, and so he's like, "Nah, I didn't say it, man." And he's like, he. He was much more prepared on the stand. Um, it, you could tell that the lawyer had him ready to go. He was cool as a cucumber up there. Uh, there might have been a slight language barrier between both of them, uh, that being the ex-wife and ex-husband. Um, they both had a decent accent, and they both kind of didn't understand the questions, but you know how lawyers are. They, they like twist their words so you don't even know if you're agreeing to something or denying something. So there was a lot of, um, can you repeat the questions and stuff like that. But he was much more calm up there. Um, so really, we get to the point where they the prosecution was after the ex-wife was like, no, we're good, we rest. And then they, they brought the, this is at, so just to give a timeline, we were about an hour and a half um, into, with the ex-wife on the stand, and then they're like, oh, we're going to go to lunch, this is about 10, 10 to uh, noon, but so 11.50, and the judge is like, I have a lunchtime meeting I couldn't get out of, so let's start again at 1.15. You know, so we went an hour and a half on, an hour and a half off, which is kind of frustrating. Um, you know, because I wanted to get out of there. I was hoping that we were going to be out at three. You know, something, that was my my ultimate. Maybe I can get home and get a little more work in. Um, I sure as hell didn't want it to go into Friday because Friday I have off. But obviously because um, when you lose, you know, 10 hours a week to jury duty, you have to... Uh, you're going to have to work on Friday to make up for it. And so the reason I point out the timeline is because when we came back, uh, about one fifteen, we started talking to the ex-wife again, only for about like 20 more minutes. It was kind of a weird break um, to just pick up where they had left off. Um, and so when she w got off the stand, the prosecution said no more witnesses, they were good. And then, the, like I said, the defendant took the stand. That was their only witness. They're like, no, nah, we're good. And so we're kind of sitting here like, wait, that's it? That's all they're going to give us for information? Um, and they're like, yeah, so let me just reiterate what you guys need to do. Um, again, the sticking point to me, um, in my opinion, was just that the only thing we had was they're only allowed to talk about their kids. So if there was a death threat, and again, the, remember, it's not the death threat. It's that he said something that was unrelated to the kids. That was really the, that was the entire case. Was if he said it, then that violates it. 
and it's it doesn't matter what it was as long as it's not about the kids um so if i wonder if he was like hey i when i kill you will it i it's going to make the kids life harder i wonder if that would have violated the uh, decree which it you know is sickening and i'm a bad person but you know it's about the kids welfare um so we go back into the um jury room this is about 245 right and i'm like oh man this is just straight he said she said you know um she says he threatened her life she called the cops she was scared she didn't leave until uh the cops were there um he was definitely pissed off and for good reason like uh he no information his youngest broke his elbow which was a surprise to him five days later he goes to a doctor's appointment and they just keep jabbing right it's just uh they tell his wife that he can't be there uh, it's just a culmination of events that would probably um upset any human being um and well, this is two people that don't like each other so um so we're i go in and we're in a smaller room and this is the first time we're allowed to talk um they said even when we were on break or when we were on lunch that we weren't allowed to talk about the case because you're supposed to be formulating your own ideas um so it's interesting so you go into this uh, into the courtroom and you're hearing everything about the case and then you're supposed to go into this other room and be like hey so what do you do for work and that's it's actually the way it was um everybody's really good about it um i didn't really see a lot of like faces or anything but i wasn't really trying to you know pry or anything i was just kind of um doing what they told us to do um so we had to determine a foreman what a foreman does is they take all the um evidence and um so if anybody wanted to um look at one of the items or they also are kind of like the the leader if you will of kind of letting everybody say their piece and then uh determining a verdict when it's unanimous um and so the first thing i did was i went very diplomatic uh, i was like you know i don't want to put any pressure on anybody um do we want to do like a anonymous vote where you you know you kind of put it in a hat or something and um we'll see if we're not unanimous at the moment and people are like i don't really think we need that and we kind of did like five minutes of talking and everybody was on the same page like legitimately everybody felt like the prosecution just didn't prove anything that um uh it very well might have happened which is kind of the worst part is they kind of put us in this tough predicament where i can't say that he didn't say it but no one told us he did and uh you know it's innocent until proven guilty right and there just wasn't uh, the burden of proof was on the prosecution and there just wasn't uh, there wasn't like we're not saying there wasn't enough evidence there was nothing uh they told us the whole story leading up to it about this kid and his poor broken arm and going to the hospital and the ex-wife goes here and all this and does he know arabic or does he not and all this and no one the had any information about whether the uh gentleman said anything so it, it's really tough to uh have 
uh, any type of proof or feel strongly that he did say anything, even though it, you know, he most certainly could have. Um, and there's just no one around to see it or hear it. Um, so it took us <laughs> legit, like, it took me longer to find the bailiff than it is for, for us to discuss it. Um, we went, I went and told the bailiff that we got a verdict. Um, we were then brought back into the jury room or into the courtroom. Um, no one told me anything how it works. Like, I understand that we've all seen it on TV where you have the one guy who um, says what uh, the verdict is. But usually those have like a bunch of different, you know, things. They're like guilty on this count, not guilty on this count and all this. But um, so we go in. They're like, understand you guys reached a verdict. And uh, they're like, juror six, you're uh, you're the foreman. And I was like, uh, yeah. So I, I stood up and uh, I was like, yep. And he's like, and what is the verdict that you've reached? And I was like, not guilty. And then... Uh, they're like, and the rest of the jury, you agree? And everybody's like, yep. And, you know, I kind of was just, like, wrapped up in the moment. I didn't, like, look over at the defendant or um, the ex-wife was still in the courtroom at this point. She was um, behind the prosecution. So I don't know how they reacted. Um, but that was it. I mean, it was pretty anticlimactic. After all, uh, it felt like at 10 in the morning that, you know, we had a death threat on our hand and that he was going to get um, pretty in detail. And when it came down to it, there was really nothing. It was just a story about a kid who broke his arm and the parents don't communicate or, you know, divorced parents don't communicate and they don't like each other. But we don't have any type of proof whether or not uh, he said he's going to kill her. So, and legitimately... One of the uh, other juror members said something that we all kind of felt was, uh, well, I hope I don't read in three years that, you know, something happened here and that they say the system failed them. Um, because I feel like we all agreed and that we did what was right, but it doesn't mean that the prosecution didn't fail her. And so that was kind of the, the sad takeaway was kind of felt like the prosecution just didn't try hard enough here or maybe there was nothing there you know that that's the rationalization to make yourself feel good right is maybe they did look and couldn't find it and if that's the case then they probably should have just thrown it out but thankfully it only took us you know a couple days to figure it out and hopefully we gave the right decision so i will leave you with uh with the law and order sound, if I can uh, bring it up easy enough. No thanks to YouTube Red. Bam! Uh, remember the funniest text that there's ever been? I will read it again for you, just for some, uh, uh, to alleviate any sad feelings you have after the ending there. If I get another person sending me this damn link, I know, Dave. Thanks. I'm an overweight, middle-aged man that hasn't left his hometown and works for less than I should, and the girl I lost my virginity to is starring in goddamn Law & Order. And with that, I leave you. Thanks for listening.